Welcome to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine Statewide Campus System Med Ed Transformation Podcast. Today's discussion is going to highlight uh, some of the process of integrating active learning and reflection and assessment into your teaching. Uh, we're going to be talking about a course in the UME space. However, many of those concepts can be extrapolated to the GME space. Um, it's really about getting learner involvement, active listening of the faculty that are teaching and, and the students. And we're joined today by someone I have, I have looked up to as a faculty member that exuberates excellence, who has taken the time to mentor me on my own teaching, who is dedicated to teaching and facilitating learning for advancement of osteopathic medicine, she is also one of the 2021 Patenji Award recipients and my colleague, Dr. Mary Hughes. Dr. Hughes, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. So you, your course um, in the, is the last systems course before students enter clerkship into the respiratory course. Correct. Let, let's talk about that because I, I know that there's a lot of anxiety or uh, stress by the students coming into that course, but your course does something so unique. So I'll, I'll give you a chance to do an overview of the course and then we can, can talk a little more. So I think kind of to put things in perspective, I have kind of always been one of those people that kind of like to push the envelope a little bit on educational techniques and new ways of doing things and trying not to do the same thing year after year after year if I didn't have to. Um, that being said, I, when the college went to 300 students and was putting 50 at MUC and 50 at the DMC, I rapidly volunteered to be one of the beta test people to test out the polycom system to figure out what was the best way to broadcast these lectures live to Southeast Michigan. It rapidly became very apparent to me that at least at the time that we were doing this, which was about 2009-ish, um, that it was really disruptive if it crashed. And it would take anywhere from, seems like forever, but five minutes or a little bit more in the middle of a lecture um, to get it reattached to the bridge. And then by then the students had all started all their little conversations in their little groups while they were waiting, no surprise. And then getting them back into the scheme of the content that you were teaching was a little bit tricky. And it also was a little bit tricky to um, understand what the people at the other sites were actually engaged in and whether they actually were engaged in the content and felt free to ask questions or if I wasn't seeing their hand go up quick enough and therefore I was missing people and their questions. And so um, that happened on multiple lectures that I tried through the Polycom and I thought, oh, I can't do this. Um, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to do something different. Um, so at the time, I mean, I had pretty good attendance in my lectures because I have a lot of pictures and a lot of stories that go with all the content, which kind of helps the delivery, I think. And I typically was working nights and coming in off a night shift, I was full of stories. It seemed like the night before you always got something that related to what you were lecturing on the next day. So it was very fresh and you could give a right up-to-date story about whatever disease I was talking about at the time. So that being said, a lot of the attendance was about 15% of the students were attending live and everything else was being just listened to broadcast um, at a delayed time. And so our students weren't really engaged in a lot of the lecture content as it was. So I elected to what I would call flip the classroom, which has now become in vogue, but at the time really wasn't much heard of at this campus and certainly not in COM. And I spent an inordinate amount of time, probably of my own time, like a thousand hours, because I tracked it, um, putting together a modular curriculum that would allow the students to be able to be engaged with the material once we taught it to them. So we moved all the lectures to online 
and we made them as best we could. And this is where you were involved as our firm, one of our pharmacology faculty, Deb, into modular pieces that were 20 to 30 minutes at length, understanding that the actual attention span of our learners or for anybody, it doesn't matter what your age, is probably 15 to 30 minutes and then they need a little break. So we divided our lecture content into either chapters or sections or whatever, and would post them as, as that. And I organized them by um, content area. So the advantage of doing something like that for the student's perspective was actually that we were no longer tied to the faculty schedule. Um, so if they had a major pathology conference or an emergency medicine conference or whatever that was going on during the course and weren't gonna be in town when it was their time to lecture where it would actually fit, then we had to do it out of order. And that kind of made for a very disjunctured uh, or dysfunctional uh, flow, I think, for the students. By putting the lectures online, we got rid of all of that because it doesn't really matter. They're all recorded ahead of time and we can put them in the sequence where it makes sense. So I can talk about the disease and the pharmacology and the pathophysiology and the anatomy all kind of tied together back to back to back to back without um, worrying about who's in town or out of town. So that was to me a huge win in the sequencing of the content. Um, after that, my next thought was, how do you get the students to interact with this material so they, I'm actually sure they understand the major concepts and how this is gonna play out for them clinically in just a few short months. So at the time we were headed into one of the election years that we were developing this. And so we were gonna be teaching these on Tuesdays. And so they became known as the Super Tuesday sessions. And it was designed very similar to what it is now, even with COVID, we tried to keep some of this the same, although virtually it doesn't work nearly as well as in person. And we made case-based discussions that the students in small groups divided into even smaller groups would work individually at their sites with a faculty member who was skilled in that content area and work through the cases. So the pharmacology would come to life, the infectious disease would come to life, the pulmonary functions, the ventilator, the how do you interpret all these tests. And it gave me the opportunity to actually allow the students to review content from prior courses, such as a little bit about anemia from the hematology course, which can make somebody short of breath, a little bit about EKGs and the fact that somebody who's having an acute heart attack might present with shortness of breath rather than chest pain. And so we went about that and those were very well received. And I think the students left with the ability to actually um, use the material that they were taught. I and mean, they saw how it would fit into their clinical decision-making. We spent a lot of time on differential diagnosis, a lot of time on kind of sorting through the facts that, that were presented to them to figure out what was important and what was kind of maybe a red herring and what was maybe gotta have it in the chart, but it doesn't really affect this decision-making process for me today. Um, and I think that has been very helpful for the students. A lot of the faculty have done something similar, but not to that extent in their courses by increasing the amount of case-based learning um, that goes on in all the systems courses, starting with um, neuro doing more of it, and then right straight on through with renal and endocrine and GI and all of the other courses. So I think that was the beginning of flipping the classroom and being more comfortable with adult learners can get the basic knowledge However, they want to get the basic knowledge. They can read our textbook, they can listen to our lecture modules, they can do however works for them. And then we will help them put it all together once they get into this small group setting. And then we are going to test them at a higher level to make sure that they can read a vignette and interpret the vignette because that's really what's going to make them successful on part one of the boards. And I think that's the hardest part. It's not the basic knowledge for the students. It's really trying to sort the vignette and figure out what actually the disease is. 
Um, I use the example a lot of times that um, you can take a young woman with lower abdominal pain and depending on how it's presented, it could either be a simple cystitis or it could be pelvic inflammatory disease. And you have to figure out what disease it is because the question that will be associated with that vignette will be the most common organism causing the pathology in this patient is. If you don't know whether it's PID or cystitis, you will not get the right answer. And you know, you'll, both answers will be there as options for sure if it's a good, well-written question. So I think being able to interpret a vignette is really one of the crystal clear things we need to help them as they navigate our curriculum to make sure that they can sift and sort the facts and come up with a final, this is the most likely. So I guess that in a nutshell is kind of and you taught in it, Deb. So I did teach in it. It was a it was a pleasure to teach in that course. Um, I loved the flipped uh, classroom option, and I, I love the the way of using the recorded modules to give our learners the foundation of the content. So the facts, the definitions, like you said, the things that they can obtain by either reading the textbook or or listening to the recorded uh, modules. It did require a little bit from them, from the learners, to be self-directed in their learning, making sure that they did something before coming to those small groups. And I think the learners um, caught on quite quickly that if they didn't come prepared to those small groups, then it wasn't going to be a good time for them. <laughs> right, because actually part of the secondary curriculum for that class was teaching the students or allowing the students an opportunity to practice oral presentation skills in a safe environment. So to me, that's a very important third year student skill set. And we don't allow or have very many opportunities for them to present. And so I meticulously assigned throughout the course of the day who the speakers were going to be in each one of the small group sessions so that over the course of the entire day, every student would have been paired with at least one other student and would have been the speaker for the case. And all the answers were supposed to be fed for this to the speaker and then the speakers were supposed to answer my questions or the faculty's questions. And then if they couldn't, the rest of the class could pipe in for sure. But to get them used to that kind of Socratic way of teaching that happens so readily on rounds but is so foreign when you're sitting in the classroom all day long. So I think that was one of my other ulterior motives or ulterior curriculums. Um, and early on, part of the motivation to study ahead of time was the fact that we gave them the quiz ahead of time um, so that they came prepared because you're right, if you don't come prepared, then it's, and it wasn't designed to be another lecture. It was designed to be hands-on, you work this out and we'll guide you and ask you more questions to help you get those aha moments in your head. And then once you have them, it generally sticks quite well. And I hear that regularly from the students after the fact. I don't hear it so much during the fact because it is kind of, I move their cheese, so to speak. And most people don't like that, which I understand. Um, but at the end of the day, I think they have a better grasp of the content and can use it when they get to the hospital. And I do hear that a lot from the third year students that email back and say, you know, I did really well on the respiratory portion of this. Thanks. And, you know, I was the only one that could interpret the PFTs for the patient. Even the resident couldn't do it. You know, that makes them feel like they've really learned something and they're a worthwhile member of the patient care team, which they are. Right. So, and I think I've worked across the continuum of medical education from an undergrad class that I've taught here at MSU since 2004. That's a clinical emergency medicine research. So I see the pre-med students and then I see the medical students across all four years. And then I move into the graduate medical education arena where I spent 34 years as a program director and worked with residents and still do. I'm there a research director and a core faculty member in emergency medicine residency. So I'm still very engaged in 
where they've come from, where they are and where they're going. And I think that helps um, me at least know what they need to know. Um, I think sometimes it's hard for them to believe that I have any sense of that, but I feel like I do um, because I work with it every week that I'm uh, involved and that's pretty much 52 weeks a year or so. Right, right. Now you brought up another point earlier when you were talking about the course and you said, you know, it gives being the last systems course, it gives you an opportunity to link back to some of the other systems courses, neuromuscular, skeletal, general, urinary, um, and so on. Students often will say, and probably even learners in GME, depending on what rotation and, and didactics they're getting that week, um, oh, we've already learned this, um, or you know, so-and-so taught me this, but it was taught differently. You do something unique in your class as well, because you pointed out that you bring the experts in of those contents to help teach and facilitate um, those areas. So for example, I'll, I'll pick on myself for a minute. I taught pharmacology for the respiratory uh, uh, section and it was on the antibiotics and uh, antimicrobials for, teaching, for treating respiratory infections. But I was also the one who taught that same content in the pharmacology course that they had a year and a half earlier. Would you classify that as like reinforcement or planned redundancy? I say reinforcement um, because I think as we have gone on in medical education and I'm like, I'll tell the residents at graduation this year, I'm heading into my PGY 40 years. So I've been at this for a while. Um, there never goes by a day that I don't learn something new. And so I may have heard it somewhere before, I may have seen it somewhere before, but it was a little bit different or geez, the way that this is presented makes way more sense than anything I've ever learned before. So they're headed into a career where they're gonna need to continually read and listen to podcasts and figure out what best works for them to um, gather information that they will then be able to apply at the bedside because quite frankly, after you get done with your boards for your specialty, um, you're going to do a fair amount of, depending on your specialty, reading and then taking tests on your reading, but the tests are going to be somewhat applied in that in some specialties, you're going to be taking comprehensive boards every so many years. Some residencies, you don't do that anymore. You just take a subsection test every year everybody's specialty's got some different way of maintaining continuous certification. And that is really important to the people that we treat. And it's really important for our own um, education and ability to provide state-of-the-art care regardless of where we are. So you don't have to work in a teaching program to be required to keep up to date, which is helpful. Um, but also I think most physicians are truly kind of lifelong students. I mean, they didn't go through 12 years of this stuff to say that I don't ever want to be a student again, right? So I think that being able to reinforce ways to do that is important. And I think being um, reinforced is really a better way to look at it than being redundant, which means, oh, I've got this all down and Nobody needs to teach me this anymore. I understand it completely. I've found throughout my career that I thought I understood some things completely that then when I read another article or read another, listened to something else, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. I better do a little more reading on that and try and figure that out. So I think for myself, it's always reinforcement and not redundancy. I think some of our training is redundant. I mean, there are some things that I probably don't need to ever do again, but I do every year to maintain my job and things like that. But that be as it may, that has to do with regulations above my pay grade. And so, you know what, if you want to work and you got to do this stuff, then you just do it. Right. 
Well, I, I love that you talked about the continuum of education and about being a lifelong learner and putting into perspective that you're in your PGY 40 year, um, which I, I, I think all faculty and, and even if you're not faculty, you're, you're still a lifelong learner. Um, with that being said, we have this continuum of education. We have pre-clerkship going into clerkship. We have clerkship going into GME and then GME going into what I call the CME world because that's what you get for the rest of your years of practice. Any thoughts or suggestions on how we can start bridging that curriculum a little bit more similar to what you've done with the respiratory class course, thinking ahead of, you know, they need to know how to do presentation skills. So let's, let's make sure we're teaching that to them early. Well, and I think not only early, but giving them a safe place to practice where there's no harm. Um, I routinely tell the students in class that, you know, I don't care if we kill every patient that we're going to see today on paper, if it prevents you from harming even one patient throughout your career. And I really believe that. I mean, I think you want to practice the way you want to play. And I guess half-baked is not really my way of playing. I think that there aren't a lot of second chances in medicine, unlike maybe a soccer game or a basketball game. We can go back and practice and practice that shot and, you know, whatever. But, you know, for any move that we make in medicine, for the individual patient that we're doing it on, it's a one and done. And I think that concept is maybe a little bit foreign to some of the medical students that we have. And, you know, you hate to have them have some horrible experience that occurs at their hands or that they were involved in, even though they aren't really the decision makers in third and fourth year. Um, They often will own a large amount of the guilt that goes on with that and the remorse and the less of that we can have because we're skilled and we've been practicing the way we know that they're going to have to play, then I think the easier it is and the fewer of those untoward episodes they'll have and the better their patient care will be. Um, I write a lot of letters for medical students as a chair of osteopathic medical specialties that are going into internal medicine practices. And in the ACGME world, quite frankly, for whatever reason, they have to have a letter from the chair. And I don't work with these people on internal medicine, obviously, but I can write a letter based on their academic file. And I would say that I really haven't run across maybe more than one in the umpteen years that I've been doing these chair letters that has anything about being a bad communicator, a bad patient advocate, that kind of stuff. I think we do a wonderful job here teaching our students how to communicate, be compassionate, um, demonstrate a caring attitude, help their patients get where they need to go. But in hand in hand with being a good communicator is to be a skilled performer and a skilled knowledge base Um, retainer so that when something comes up, you have a toolbox that you can go to and figure out how you're going to fix this problem that isn't going to just be fixed with communication. Um, So I think having all of those tools for them when they go out in rudimentary fashion, um, because that again is another lifelong skill that will continue to grow and build over their entire career, if they're lucky. Um, And I think we can start that process early and maybe even do more than what we're doing. And I can tell you that I've been involved in and actually the creator of a couple of courses in the past. One was called Aspects of Clinical Medicine and one was called Clinical Correlations that I developed and wrote all the content for that was involved in a transition type course before they went to the third year. It's my understanding that Dr. Enright is working on that again. I have not um, had much involvement with that, but I'm sure she's doing a good job with 
getting that arranged. Um, but we started that and one of the classes started in like the early 1990s and the other one was in the mid 1990s. And they came to a halt because we went from going to the hospital in September to going in July and didn't have time for it in the curriculum anymore. <clears throat> but that was a very good bridge and it's not a new idea. So what we're starting to resurrect was all done here 20 years ago um, and then is now being resurrected. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, I have developed with a couple of my colleagues here a readiness for residency course that I ran as a pilot with uh, Dr. Gerstner in 2019 with some volunteer students that came two nights a week for eight weeks, four hours a night after they'd already worked 12 hour shifts and after we'd already done our 12 hours for the day. And we met um, from six to 10 p.m. and did a readiness for residency pilot project to see what we could do, what we could accomplish and did it make a difference. And hands down the number of students that we had that we were doing in the winter. So we didn't want people to be driving from afar to get here at six and then leave at 10 and be back on the road in a snowstorm. So we limited it to local students and we had 10 students participate throughout the whole eight weeks. Um, and they were very committed as were we. And I think it was a wonderful experience. And then we used that material and I submitted it all to the curriculum committee and the university curriculum committee and got it approved as IM 619 which is an elective right now as a readiness for residency. Unfortunately, our first rendition was right at the beginning of COVID. And so, and it's right at the end of respiratory for me. Then we go right into this fourth year, end of fourth year class to get them ready for residency. Um, and it's a two week elective that was designed to be all in person. So we had to do all of it online and we were actually able to do some really creative things and we covered some topics that we maybe weren't intending to cover in as much detail and couldn't do some things that we had intended to do. Um, but all in all, it was very well received. And then we did it mostly in person this spring, but because of the COVID changes in scheduling, many students were not able to participate because they were still completing core rotations that they missed back when COVID um, hit. So hopefully next spring, we'll have a better idea of what it takes to do it. I mean, it's definitely labor intensive. These, any of these kinds of courses are very labor intensive and they require a fair amount of equipment if you're gonna teach any procedures. And part of that is we have 300 students. If we had a medical school with 50 students, this would be, you could do it for all 50 without much trouble at all. Um, with the curricular revision I did in 2012, I did plot out an entire month of this kind of an elective that was going to be um, co-taught by every department was going to have a piece in it. And then it got kind of sidetracked because it required a fair amount of money to get it set up and there wasn't any money in the budget as kind of one of our many things that always stifles some of our work is lack of financial resources to get it off the ground. But that being said, I mean, there is a model and I still have it all laid out how I could, how you could do it for all 300 students. Um, if they had the opportunity to practice during their third and fourth year with equipment at their own based hospital. And that was the kicker. It wasn't the really the faculty um, were all game to do what they needed to do. And I think we had enough resources that we could do the testing um, in groups of like 80 students, but we really didn't have the resources to do the, provide the practice equipment that we would need at all sites that would be long to MSU COM and be maintained by MSU COM for just our students. So we'll see where that all goes. I mean, it may end up getting resurrected because I think that's where we got ahead. I mean, I, as a residency leadership person, I think this year is going to be very telling with every student has missed some core rotation in some fashion in person and are going to have to have that made up somewhere along the line during their residency, at least the hands-on pieces of it. So 
it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I think getting to the point where we are providing a final assessment of not only their ability to communicate and do an HMP, which I think is basic and should be done for everybody. Um, I think we need to teach them the procedures they're going to need to do and teach them some of the more advanced communication skill sets. Um, and to, to go off that, you said by doing it that way, you know, the making sure that you're ready for residency, but some of the things that you've done in your course and, and whatnot, that it adds like that psychological safety of doing it in a safe place, make your mistakes now on paper before you get into the clinical space. Or on a mannequin, right? Or on a mannequin. <laughs> yep. And, and you can do some peer-to-peer -peer teaching things with that once you, you know, do the demonstration and make sure that they all understand exactly what's going on. They can supervise each other to some extent um, with checklists readily available. And I, um, and I don't know if you know this, Deb, or not, but I did a, went back to school myself in uh, January of 2019 to do a simulation fellowship at Indiana University, um, kind of an on-job, on-campus type of thing, because I'd already done a ton of that kind of work, which all counted towards my fellowship. And then um, finished up everything in June of 2020. Um, but one of the things that I did was we were able to use our IM619 and I had participated in some work that they were doing on death notification and using a technique called rapid cycle deliberate practice for that um, method of communicating death notification. And they were doing ER residents, obviously, because that's who the fellowship is through, but I thought, you know, we could really do this with the fourth year medical students because it really doesn't matter who, what you're training to be, death notification for the most part is going to be part of your career somewhere along the line. Even as a pediatrician, it's going to be part of the unfortunate piece of your job that you won't like very much, but you're going to have to be having some skill set. And we put together actually a virtual uh, death notification thing session that actually was identical to what they did with the residents there only we did it all on zoom and we used the same standardized patients that we had at indiana um, from their sim lab and i used the faculty member who gave and created the the mnemonic that we used and then myself and the other fellows and my fellowship director served as the faculty to do the in-person on Zoom um, education. And then we did pre and post surveys and things like that. And the, the medical students had as much or more growth as the residents. <clears throat> and we've published a couple papers now on that as well. So I, some of that can be done. I mean, it wasn't really horribly expensive. There was obviously no budget for it, so I just paid for it out of my pocket, but um, it's one of those things that it's worth trying and see if you can do it, and was it effective, and I think it was effective, um, so at least by all the numbers that we could gather, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting that you that you say that, like, you know, it's like try it and see if it works, assess it, make modifications. Oftentimes as faculty, we're kind of holding on to like, well, we don't know if it's gonna work and we need to make it perfect before we try it. You are innovative in your way of teaching. Um, and I can only imagine how innovative it was in the residency program. I know in the, the UME respiratory course, very innovative. Tell me about your process and, and how you move forward with these ideas of trying assess and if it didn't work modify you know i guess my whole career has been spent i started out wanting to be a teacher when i was in elementary school because that's who i grew up around i mean that was my parents my grandparents they were either teachers or farmers so um that's my background and i ended up getting involved in an educational 
uh, venue when I was a pharmacist before I went to med school teaching pharmacology to nursing students and paramedics at a community college. And I really liked that. So then when I decided to go back and go to medical school, um, I knew that I would like to have some piece of teaching as part of my career. And fortunately, um, I was able to work the situation the way it was and had good contacts in the sense of uh, Dr. Hayes was a year ahead of me at um, in my residency and actually had graduated from here as well and had the same thing. He had been teaching basic sciences at the community college, not in, I had no idea who he was until I became a resident, but he was able to uh, work with Dr. Megan while he was a resident to convince them that <clears throat> the thing that was missing in our curriculum was em emergency medicine. And so, and that's 1984, <clears throat> excuse me, and kind of some of the first boards and residencies and things like that started in the late 70s. And so we were fairly much at the early outset of emergency medicine as a specialty. And there was no emergency medicine in the curriculum. And so he came on board and then um, I was hired the next year to join him initially part-time and then full-time the following year to add emergency medicine. And I was more into really all the teaching um, that went on. And since it was all new, you had to create it yourself. And there really wasn't anybody to show you the way um, because there were no other emergency medicine people here. And so it was a matter of relying on my prior teaching experience, which also I had nobody to show me the way, but I had good reviews. And so I figured what I was doing was probably okay. And then, you know, try to listen to feedback and make modifications if um, it doesn't alter the content or it doesn't alter what I know to be the truth, um, regardless of what maybe somebody else thinks. You know, if they're not working in the environment, they may not know exactly how things are. And I feel like since I'm still working clinically many days a month, that I have a pretty good sense of what's exactly going on right now in the hospital settings. I mean, I work in two different hospitals. It's certainly not a breadth that would say I know what goes on at every institution across the country. And I don't pretend to know that. But I am very active in you know, a variety of listservs that deal with resident education and medical school education. So there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And we use some of those curriculum pieces when we had to go to virtual this year that were all done by uh, faculty from other specialties that we really needed the content for and didn't have the expertise here to deliver. Um, I guess, shout out to the American Academy of Dermatology, which their faculty put together a student rotation, a four week student rotation with online lectures and testing modules that at least gave them the basics of clinical dermatology and how to assess a rash and how to understand when somebody was sick or not sick. So I think and that has been very well received by the students. And we've used it a lot when we didn't have, you know, the student didn't have something to do that was at least a worthwhile rotation, um, which also speaks to the amount of work that I'm sure all the faculty did to put together virtual curriculum in less than two weeks for all the students that were on rotation. I mean, I had 13 rotations to write curriculum for myself. Um, and I can tell you it was a, a lot of work. And I tried to make it um, worthwhile that it would be something that the students would use going forward. Because to me, there's nothing worse than making you do stuff that is not going to be useful or doesn't relate to the content that you're supposed to be learning anyway on rotation. So. We've had access through the libraries to some amazing content and we've been able to utilize that fairly effectively. And I think the students at least have gotten the didactics. Although in my mind, that's never a substitute for actually seeing the patient. So I'm happy that they're back in person. Right. 
And and you've always been a proponent of like, you know, don't recreate the wheel if something really good already exists, use it and then supplement it with what you can offer the patient, like in a clinical rotation or things like that. So if there's modules already created, use them and then let's, let's apply that. Right. And I think I've been very fortunate to be in emergency medicine because the faculty by and large in emergency medicine are probably the most generous faculty that you'll meet anywhere in the country. I mean, they create stuff and then they put it out for everybody to use for free. Mm -hmm. You know, I, that just doesn't happen in a lot of other specialties. And I think um, there are a lot of academic uh, didactic kinds of people in emergency medicine that like to teach and are always looking for new things to do. And everybody's got different resources at their institutions and every faculty has a different niche that they kind of are focused on. And so there's a gentleman at the University of Maryland that is like the EKG wizard and he does all kinds of stuff with EKGs and podcasts and sending out tests to residents and and it's all free. Um, How could you not? And it's really, there's almost too much information for the students and the residents and trying to call that to something that's doable in the amount of time that they have is probably the bigger challenge than not having enough things to be able to do. Right. And again, you're, you're in a unique uh, position because you are teaching across the continuum of education. You teach in UME, GME, you've taught some CME courses, but we have faculty that, that don't have that opportunity. Um, some of our basic science faculty, um, that don't get the opportunity to teach in the GME world. How would you propose that we collaborate across the curriculum? What can we do for that, the, the faculty that don't have that opportunity so that maybe they can enhance their courses or, or add components to their courses as you have done for, for your courses? I think part of that is, um, you know, there is kind of no substitute for boots on the ground, right? I mean, doing the work and being engaged and being interested in what other people are teaching goes a long ways in allowing you to have access to another faculty member's time. So if you have an idea, like with the respiratory course, I mean, I definitely wanted the physiology folks to be teaching the physiology, but I wanted it to be clinically more relevant than than textbook. I mean, there is so much physiology and respiratory that plays out in the hospital every day that if you don't understand it, you're going to make your patient worse instead of better. But if you can't figure that out by just necessarily going through and memorizing a whole bunch of formulas. So having access to faculty that are willing to sit down um, and go over clinical cases and allowed, you know, they allowed me to build the clinical case so it was real and give them real images and real facts with the case, but then give it to them and let them apply the physiology to that, which they can do very well and better than any probably clinician unless they're trained in that particular specialty and take it from there. So they don't have any access to patients, but they have access to clinical faculty members. And I think building those relationships is important. And I had built those relationships, I guess, collaboratively as we, partly I was a student at MSUCOM, right? So I knew the faculty because essentially none of them had changed by the time I was here as a new faculty member. And I'd been a good student, so they knew who I was. And I was in a much smaller class. I mean, I think my class graduated I mean, I started with 80 students and because we could do three years or four years, we had some people from the year before that graduated that were doing a four-year class and a lot of my class opted for the four-year option and so um, to have their summers off and I didn't. So, you know, maybe there was 50 or 60 people that were in a class. So you got to know people, which is very different than the 300 model that we're dealing with now. And trying to bring that down to where you get to interact with the students was what I was trying to do with the respiratory course. But I think you can do that effectively with um, a stable faculty 
in which education is as valued as research or as valued as being a consultant for some outside group or as valued as service on committees and things like that that take up our time. And so you have to decide who your teachers are and if they do superb in that, then they should be able to be promoted and rewarded for that effort, which has not really been the case at most big universities. It really the promotion stuff for basic science folks revolves around the number of research grants. And so they would get to the associate professor level. And that's kind of where they would be stopped because then if they really like to teach, they would get the teaching load, which pretty much precluded very much research, um, running a research lab and things like that. So, you know, it, it's a sacrifice they were willing to make. And I think we had some people here that had been here for many, many years. Um, I look at Bob Stevenson and John Thornburg as people that were here for many, many years and have taught in the course for years and really were able to take it and make it their own after I gave them the, let's say, the real clinical cases that would tie to it. And I think, Deb, the same with you, right? I mean, you could take the clinical case and put the pharmacology to it and get the students to use the pharmacology that you taught, not only in their year one farm course, but also in this course and get them to see how that's gonna to tie together with this patient with pneumonia or RSV or whatever they might have. Right, I mean, and, and, that, and that, was the, that was the piece that uh, was so helpful with your course. Um, it was the collaboration between basic science and the clinical faculty. But as you pointed out, it was the relationship that we built and the way that we can continue to collaborate. Um, and, and impact the curriculum, which isn't too far off from the relationships that we have to build with our patients in order to provide the best patient care. Um, so with, with that, as we're, as we're coming to uh, an end of our time together, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity because I know when we first started talking before I hit record, um, you were saying, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer your questions. Well, I think you answered all of them <laughs> for the record. <laughs> Um, but if there was anything um, that you wanted to share or words of advice for um, faculty that are, are trying to bridge um, their content across the uh, continuum like you have. I think you have to, number one, have a little bit of a vision. Um, and I can say that I didn't really have a lot of people that, ahead of me that were developing the vision, I think some of that is just innate. If you're designed to be a teacher, so to speak, and, and you feel like that's your calling in addition to the other pieces of your um, work life, then it just is part and parcel of what you think about. You know, how could I do this better? How could I, geez, that resident looks really confused. Obviously, I didn't, didn't get that across the way I thought I should, so let me come back at that in a different way. Um, so always being open and self-reflective and self-critical about reading the people that you're trying to reach, um, which there's a little bit of drawback when you do all your lecture content online. You're really not reading the people that you are trying to reach. And so you don't know unless they send you an email that they had a confusion about um, your content. But I think reaching out to the people that are part of the course that you're involved in and reaching out in particular to the people that you don't know anything about their content and therefore are afraid of their content. Because I have found that the best way to learn something is to be able to teach it. And that requires that you find knowledge from a lot of different sources. And I think that we're all open that this college is blessed with people that are very giving of their time and giving of their talents for others to make everybody, to make the ship rise, I guess is the best way to put it. I mean, we all put our oars in the water to go in the same direction and trying to get 
um, everybody to the same level and feeling comfortable is always a work in progress because some are new and young and afraid that, oh, somebody that's been here for 30 years won't really want to talk to me. That's not the case. I mean, I would argue just reach out and you will have things that they need and they will provide you with the things that you need. And you'll find that both of you teach better and provide a better education because you work together. I think working in isolation is probably the worst thing we can do. I, I agree a hundred percent. I can speak from when I joined the MSU Com family 11 years ago of how welcoming and collaborative um, the faculty uh, and staff community was when I came on board as a brand new faculty. And so I, I echo what you say. It's hard to do. You know, it's hard to reach outside yourself and say, I really don't understand the physiology of that, Dr. Stevenson, you know, who taught you physiology in, in your medical school and now is your peer and you're like, geez, I really should know that, but I don't, you know, and you have to reach out and you have to own your own inadequacies to get better. And I think those that can self-reflect and say, oh, I really don't know that, or I know that and I can teach that to somebody else that maybe has it mixed up, um, certainly is helpful. Well, wonderful. Again, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Um, We'll get this uh, up and posted and uh, everybody can uh, listen in on our, our conversation here today. All right. Thank you very much, Deb, for the invite.